Luke chapter 9, we're coming now to a passage of Scripture that's almost like a, I almost want to call it a popcorn passage. It's just a lot of little stories into one, but they actually are connected with one another uh, as well. And so sometimes different books of the Bible feel a little bit more like a, a collection than a cohesion, but tonight I think you'll see both. And so Luke chapter 9 We're going to begin with verse 1 in just a moment. Uh, Let's pray before we read God's Word tonight. Father, thank you for a chance to come here this evening. Uh, Thank you that we can uh, can cry out, uh, as we sang, that that you uh, would help us to to lift our eyes uh, to the Maker and and, uh, the the mountains that we can't climb. Lord, that you're the one who carries us over. Uh, Lord, tonight for all of those who are on our prayer list, those who are mentioned, others that have not been mentioned, and and, uh, Lord, for what each one of us bring in here tonight, we just ask, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would look to you, that your help would be with those who need it in a very real way, and Father, that you would just call us to uh, be your hands and feet wherever you would have us to go. uh, and so we, we thank you, Lord, for a chance to look at your word tonight. We ask your blessing upon it. Uh, we thank you in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin with verse 1, and we're just going to read uh, this passage in, uh, in sections. I'm going to read the first nine verses here for us. So Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, and Jesus called together the 12 and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. You have got a, a handout, Lord willing, there nearby tonight. We're going to do like we normally do and fill in some blanks. And before that, we're going to do what we normally do and look at some pictures. Right, boys and girls? Let's do that together. <laughs> and so uh, never get too old for that, right? I, I think it just, um, I've, I've heard if there is a visual attached to uh, whatever you're hearing, that the percentages of being able to retain and sort of take in what's there just goes exponentially higher. Uh, so as far as a, a town that is in the story tonight, Bethsaida, there's a little bit of discussion about where exactly that is. Uh, we know roughly where that is. And so to make a long story short, it is somewhere in this picture. And there are people here who will make arguments based on one area or the other, but if you zoom far enough out, you can get it all in there, can't you? And so Bethsaida is more than likely on the western shore uh, of of Galilee, and you've got there here um, the the range of of area where it would be somewhere uh, in this this avenue. And so uh, there is where Jesus is is going to be in a number of places, particularly the feeding of the 5,000. But we start tonight with an assignment that the Lord Jesus gives uh, his disciples. He calls the 12 together and he grants them power and authority. 
Uh, the two group, uh, Greek words that are used there translate to English really well, but I think it's important. When we think of power, we often have some negative connotations or we think of something truly mighty. When we start thinking about the word power, you might be thinking about that engine you had in your car back when, you know, gas didn't cost near as much. And, you know, I, I remember my grandfather late in his life could always tell me, even when he couldn't remember a lot of other things, just how fast he'd gone in that first car he'd had, you know, down the road. Some of you remember... Uh, what power might you know, conjure into your mind. Power has become a term in our day and age too where uh, with, with different political and, and other conversations, power is sometimes used as a, as a negative connotation or something to lord over other people. Really, when the Bible speaks of power, the word that's used here is quite simply just an ability. It's not talking about overwhelming power, but just power itself being the ability, the means to do so. And so authority is the permission to do so, and power is the ability to do so. And so Jesus has granted both of those things to his disciples. And the first blank I've got for you here tonight, uh, it comes into case for us, and it certainly came into case for the disciples. Jesus calls his disciples to do his work, not just observe. Jesus calls his disciples to do his work and not just observe. If you have ever taught a classroom of children, there are some who really enjoy doing and there are others who really enjoy listening. And so that conversation that you have to have with them at some point to say, now's the time, little Billy, where you're going to be able to do what I just said and you're going to take your pencil and you're going to write this on your paper or you're going to do this or that. And some of them look at you like what? I'm not here to do stuff. I'm willing to listen to you, but that's about it. And in our lives, we sometimes never grow out of that either, that we really like observing, but if we're not careful, the Christian walk can become like a football game. 22 people on the field sweating like crazy and 20,000 people in the stands watching all day long. And so God's called each one of us into action in different ways. Sometimes we're not in the game, so to speak. We are observing, but at other times he's called us uh, to put that faith, put what we've learned into practice. He calls the disciples to do that as well. He called the 12, 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. If I'd have been there, I'd said, Jesus, can I just teach a class? I don't know how I feel about having power over demons about curing diseases, I'm just not quite sure I know how to do that. But it's a, it's a way for us to know they haven't just learned something. They're experiencing something supernatural that they otherwise wouldn't have the ability to do. Jesus didn't just teach them how to cast out demons. He had to give them the power and the authority to do that. And so as they head out into these places, that's what they're going to be doing. Have you ever been given an assignment where you said, ooh, I really don't want to do that? I'm not sure I'm going to be free, actually. Jesus, we've got some things on our calendar that are planned. I'm not sure that I'm going to be in, in, available for the demon casting out and disease curing time uh, that, uh, that, that's going on. Um, I was talking with, uh, with somebody earlier just a minute ago about, you know, what it's like for us to think about, are we willing to come to church if we've got a slight cough anymore? Y'all remember in the old days when we used to be proud about how sick we came to church? I, I can remember people leaning into me and they said, I had 102 fever all weekend and Bennett, well, why are you here? Go home, you know? And uh, nowadays you get scared to death to even sneeze in church, don't you? It's, it's worn off a little bit, but we're more conscious of that now. But to go cure diseases, I bet Jesus didn't give out any hand sanitizer. They just had to go, you know, on their own. They'd seen Jesus touch a leper. I don't know if they were ready to touch lepers yet. But uh, 
cast out demons, power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. To proclaim the kingdom of God, what in the world does that mean? We've all heard it, we've seen it so many times. What does that truly mean? Well, probably we get a a thought in our head to say, well, the kingdom of God, that's heaven. That's ultimately what he's prepared for us. And that's not wrong, but it's just not complete. The kingdom of God, kingdom by its very phrase, is a dominion that is ruled by a king. And so they are going to proclaim that the king has come. And the hope for us, even though Jesus says, look, don't tell them, you know, everything about me being the Messiah. They don't understand that because of their cultural context. There's there's ways you're going to keep certain truths hidden. But what they're doing is communicating a truth that has come from the mouth of the king and the kingdom is now no longer in the enemy's hands because the king has come. And so uh, the kingdom of God, the ultimate hope and result of what God had planned all along. And so that kingdom's going to go all the way into eternity, but it actually starts for you and me Now, it started beforehand. You know, aren't you glad that God's not absent and someday we're going to get to be with him, but until then, you're just on your own. That's not the hope of the gospel. Jesus Christ has stepped into time and space and humanity, clothed himself in human flesh and stepped into our world in order that we might not just have hope someday, uh, but have hope now as well, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. He's obviously never led a mission trip at a Baptist church. I don't know. I don't know how in the world we would ever get by with saying that. You always find out about how much people need when they travel, when they show up to get on the bus that day when they're going somewhere, you know. Well, the plane says we can only have 40 pounds uh, of luggage. Well, that, well, I've only got 40 pounds in each bag. That's, That's all I've got. But um, I never knew they made suitcases as large as some of them. I was scared sometimes somebody was trying to sneak their spouse, you know, overseas. I didn't know. Giant suitcases. But Jesus says, no, you're not going to need all that extra stuff. Why? Because you're going to depend on, through faith, the care that's going to be provided to you by those that I'm going to bring to uh, your aid. Not money. Don't have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That would be a declaration that they were not received in the way that they should have been. And so uh, there's a a way of even the, the way you step out of the town to declare that what was done was not honoring to the Lord. And so the disciples did it. They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Jesus tells a parable about a good Samaritan. You remember that good Samaritan that was on the side of the road on the way to Jericho? You remember who all went by? There was a priest that went by, there was a Levite that went by, all these people with great religious qualifications. And I think it's great that as we read about the disciples here, they're just a ragtag bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and who knows what else. They would never make any other disciple group, but Jesus brings them into their, to his group but they're obedient. Sometimes you can look real great and not be obedient, but Jesus uh, in in his working with the disciples is is able to affect their obedience and they honor him with obedience. They departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel, the good news and healing everywhere. And then we see a really interesting aside. Um, Luke makes a shorter passage 
than Matthew or Mark talking about the disciples going out. We get it condensed here in Luke, but he does give us some insight to Herod's perspective. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others that one of the prophets of old uh, had arisen. So you get just the same um, word-of-mouth reliability in that day as you do now that there's a way in which there's all kinds of different things flying around to say, well, I bet Jesus is this guy, I bet he's this other guy. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Well, we heard it's this. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod is going to finally get to meet Jesus. Do you remember when? When Jesus is brought before him and the time of the trial has come and Herod, Pilate, are going to pass Jesus back and forth before Pilate ultimately condemns Jesus. But it's interesting that here in this passage, someone who has just been responsible for the beheading of one of God's prophets, someone who we're told uh, had a marriage that was against the will of the Lord, that he had made arrangements to, uh, to take in one of his family members' wives. It was a, a big scandal, but he wasn't willing to turn around from that. And so Herod was somebody who didn't seem to have a desire to have a relationship with the Lord, and yet there was a curiosity about Jesus. Uh, the second thing I've got here for you is sometimes even Jesus' enemies are curious about him. Sometimes even Jesus' enemies are curious about him. Isn't that interesting? You read in the latter chapters of the book of Acts that Paul is almost constantly before uh, people speaking about the gospel, and yet it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of impact on them. That he's speaking, he's given the kind of defense of the gospel that you'd say, boy, that's really going to get them. But you don't get the indications that they believe, that they trust. There's a curiosity about Jesus. And so I say two things in the little mini points that are underneath there. The first is this, take advantage of that. Take advantage of that. When someone's curious about Jesus, you don't have to process whether they're curious for a good reason or a bad reason. You or I don't have to say, well, they're just curious because they, you know, they've got this other agenda. Hey, curiosity is great. That's an opportunity. So even people who seem far from the Lord who are curious about Jesus, that's an opportunity that very well could be the Lord working on their hearts and lives, giving them an opportunity. So take advantage of that. And at the same time, don't let curious rejection discourage you. Don't let curious rejection discourage you. That at times there are those who are the most curious, but the words of Jesus come to them, the truth about Jesus comes to them, and just like seed that's been scattered on the path or took root for a time and grew up, but the thorns and thistles of this world crowded the seed out. You know, Jesus talks about what it's like for those to somehow take in his truth, but then ultimately decide, I'm not interested. You and I are really more prideful than we think we are. And, and you know why that is, is because we tend to do really good at giving praise to the Lord when good things happen. But when bad things happen, particularly when we say, well, I, I really tried to do this and it failed, what do we say? I failed. Well, if the person gets saved, well, that was God. He did that. He took care of that whole thing. God, God did that. And you're right. But what's interesting is when things fail, sometimes we take that personally, don't we? I must not have said what I should. I must not have been the best person that I could have. I must not have relayed that in the right way. Well, all those things are true to some extent, but you know what? God's not working through our ability. He's working through his power, his might, his grace, his truth. 
The power of the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we've gotta be willing to say, you know what? Just because a curious person doesn't take in the truth about Jesus, I don't need to take that so personally that I'm not willing to continue to share the good news with others. Don't let that discourage you. Don't let curious rejection discourage you. And then we come to a passage that you might remember is the old trivia game. What passage is in all four gospels besides the events of, you know, once you get to the last supper or the triumphal entry, you know, before that, what story is in all four? Well, it's the feeding of the 5,000. You might remember that. It's in all four gospels. Now, you can make the argument that potentially uh, a woman anointing Jesus' feet, whether that's more than one occurrence or not, but every gospel also has a story uh, about Jesus being anointed in his feet by a woman. But Jesus feeding the 5,000 here, we're going to pick up and read verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces." Now, we don't know exactly what kind of fish they had and exactly what it looked like, but the best guess from that side of the world is maybe something like this. Has that got your appetite going tonight? You ready? I have found that Americans aren't crazy about fish that's looking back at them. And uh, this, is, this is one of those. I believe this f- fish is called uh, a mushed fish. It's known today as St. Peter's fish, uh, but they're one of the fish that uh, is, is in the Sea of Galilee. There's some pita-type bread that would have been there, uh, perhaps, and, uh, and then I'm not sure what else that is sitting on the plate, and a lemon or an orange. I don't know that they had one of those there. But fish and loaves, a common staple around the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, and so this more than likely would have been the type of thing uh, that they had together. You can even see some ancient works. This is an ancient mosaic of, uh, of the fish and the loaves that are there in a basket. And this is from, I think, around the third or fourth century AD, just a couple centuries out uh, from when that, but, but pictured even very uh, early on that this is a story that resonated with people. Jesus' miraculous creation of all of this food uh, for people. The next point that I've got for you here is something I couldn't help but think of as you come to the beginning of this story, because Luke helps connect their work previously, how they had gone out, to now the feeding of the 5,000. Sometimes in the Gospels, it's a bit, we're not always told things chronologically, but Luke goes to make the point here that they are relaying 
how the previous work went to Jesus when this event takes place. So these two are connected chronologically in a way uh, to whereas the disciples are, are relaying these things, now this crowd is forming and, uh, and it's interesting how they react and how Jesus reacts. The point number three I've got for you here is we really have to fight our tendency to tell Jesus, I'm ready to just observe again. I'm ready to just observe again. Whoo, Lord, we had a wonderful time. I couldn't believe all the people we saw healed, all the demons we saw come back out. That was great, but boy, I tell you what, Jesus, I'm tired. It's gonna take at least a month before I'm willing to do something like that again. You ever felt like that? We went on a, we went on a trip and, and we were able to share Christ with so many people. Boy, it just wore me out so bad. I'm not gonna share Christ with anybody until we go back next year. We sometimes are really ready to just observe again. If you've ever had, you know, children at home and, and all of a sudden they have to do a certain chore, it's like it's the end of the world for them to do that. And they're just so glad that now mom and dad, after they did it one time, they think, well, maybe that's good for a lifetime. I don't ever have to do it again. I'm ready to just observe again. I'm so glad to get in the, in the observation game. We have to fight our tendency to tell Jesus that. They, they share everything about what they saw and they rejoice at what had taken place. But as the day, the day wore away, uh, the 12 began to speak about the crowd. And it's interesting, Jesus' phrase, you give them something to eat. Now, he's not just being rude. He's not trying to obviously put off what can be done. But he's saying to the disciples who were given power and authority over demons and over disease, if you are given power and authority over demons and disease, are you willing to think whether the Lord might have something for you with 5,000 people here who need to eat? And of course they respond and say, well, we don't have enough money to do that. They can only think temporally. They're back to just simply examining things the way they always had, no matter what Jesus had been able to do in their hearts and lives. It's a real challenge for us. We're constantly, if we're not careful, trying to get back to observation mode. If we can just watch, I really enjoy watching Jesus. I feel like my spiritual gift might be watching. I enjoy it. Other people, they're the ones who are so gifted. So-and-so can't even get on a plane without coming back, having the whole first class, you know, having trusted in Christ for salvation. But me, I can't do that. I just, I'm an observer. I just like to observe. Oh, but what God does through those people who think they're not qualified, they can't do it. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And when their response takes place, Jesus then steps up, has them sit the group down. He had them all sit down and Jesus recognized that he was gonna have to be the one to move. But you know what? He still involved the disciples. Put them in groups of 50, and then he, once they get gathered together, the loaves and the fish, he looks over to, uh, uh, he, he raises those up, blesses them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. The disciples still become the means by which that they get handed out. So even with their willingness to say, Jesus, I really would love to observe again. Can I just observe? Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go back into taking the lead, but you're the one that's going to pass this out. You're, you're going to still have a role. Jesus really is not calling us to somehow only sit and marvel at who he is, but to believe in who he is and what he's done enough to step into action with his leading. And it's the pattern we see here with the disciples. And so number four, Jesus once again presses his disciples into service. Not because Jesus needs anybody to help him, 
but because they need to grow in the way that God's prepared for them for what they are going to be called to do. And so on this day, it's passing out fish and it's passing out bread. And as time goes on, more and more, they're being grown and being shown more and more. All of a sudden to where you read the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say to Peter, one of these days, somebody is going to dress you and they're going to lead you somewhere that you don't want to go. Take heart at that time. That the path is going to be laid all the way and it begins with things like handing out fish and handing out bread. But little by little, Jesus wasn't content with them simply watching and observing and saying, boy, aren't you great, Jesus? Wow, wasn't that wonderful? We are called to worship and we are called to marvel, but we need the work of the Lord Jesus in our lives calling us to follow him and to do what he has for us. So all this happens. These 12 baskets of broken pieces are left over. And now the, the narrative shifts because we know that the next passage takes place in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And so this is brought into a, 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 our reading for a thematic connection, even though it's not immediately right afterwards. Uh, it may have been very soon afterwards, but it is in a different location. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is the area of Caesarea Philippi. So you can see uh, today it doesn't look like much, but in that day it was quite a, a connecting point for a lot of different cultures and areas. There were actually a lot of idols in Caesarea Philippi because it was sort of a melting pot for a lot of different people and it was a, a crossroads for a lot of different people. So you could go there and worship just about anything or anyone if you just found the right street to go down. And so it was more than likely to some extent in the midst of all of these idols, in the midst of all these other ways and other avenues for people to pursue uh, the divine and the supernatural that all led to nothing apart from Christ, in the midst of all of that, it's there that Jesus looks over and says, who do people say that I am? And interestingly enough, the disciples have heard the same stuff that Herod has. Now, Herod is an Idumean. He's, you remember in the, the gospels, they are constantly warning, Jesus is warning the people against the leaven of the Pharisees. And at times he's warning them about the Sadducees. He also warns them about the Herodians at times because the Herodians were the sellouts in Israel. They were the ones who were more concerned about money than their own heritage and their own people. The Herodians were the ones who were just, you know, they, they didn't have integrity, you know, by, by a group. They were just going to go whatever benefited them. And so Herod, the sellout, the murderer, has got access to the same rumors that the disciples got. Makes full rounds. It just goes around to everybody. And so the disciples don't have a better theological understanding than one of the most wicked men in Israel. Who do people say that I am? Well, they say this, they say that, they say, you know, maybe Elijah, maybe John the Baptist, maybe another prophet of old. It's incredibly similar. But then Jesus asks the most important question. Who do you say that I am? You know, none of us are ever gonna stand before God someday and be asked to relay what somebody else thought, what somebody else said what the public opinion was, 
what seemed, you know, apropos, what seemed the, uh, the most beneficial thing to do or to think or to believe. We, we won't get asked that someday, I'm convinced. But the most important question that comes down to us is, well, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe? What do you believe? Number five, the pivotal question of our life is who we say Jesus is. The most pivotal question of our life is who we say Jesus is. Peter has the right answer. The Christ or the Messiah, the promised one of God. Now we know from the testimony of the other gospels that even though Peter made this great declaration, he's gonna put his foot in his mouth immediately, not far after this. You might remember that as Jesus goes into the testimony that Luke also gives here, as he begins to speak about his death, about uh, the punishment that he's going to receive, about the way uh, in which the, um, the, the uh, death is gonna come for him. And, and otherwise, Peter pulls him aside and says, look, Je- uh, Jesus, you don't need to talk like this. I don't think you're right in the way you're thinking through this. And so the person who said you're God's Messiah was ready to try to correct him just a short time later. And so Jesus then says to Peter the phrase, nobody wants to to hear from the mouth of Jesus, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you've ever told your spouse that. I wouldn't recommend it. It's not, I, I'm not, I haven't said it. That's a pretty ugly thing to say to somebody. But yet Jesus was communicating that even though Peter had spoken divine words just a short time before, now what he was communicating was essentially the devil's heart. That Jesus is no harm, Jesus is no threat, as long as his life turns out rosy and perfect. No, Jesus had come in order to lay down his life and to bear the sins of all of us. And so God's plan, though it seemed like madness to perhaps the disciples, was what had been planned all along. He was going to be the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He was going to be the one uh, to carry the iniquity that, that we deserve, that all we like sheep have gone astray, and each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus had come to do that. And so Peter in Luke's gospel does not get the condemnation, but we do see that he says the correct phrasing, and Jesus praises him for it. Blessed are you, Simon, because you know, you've not realized that on your own, but that's been revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, it sounds real good now, Peter, but you're getting ready to stick your foot in your mouth here in just a minute, so don't get too proud. He doesn't do that. He, he praises him for what he said because the merit of what he said is right. And you know, there's an encouragement there for us because knowing who Jesus is means recognizing the truth about him and believing in that truth even when we don't get all the details right. If we had to be able to figure out exactly how the end times were going to turn out in order to be able to step into heaven's gates, you know how daunting of a task that would be? How about I called you up here at the front tonight and I said, okay, once and for all, we've got to get this God's sovereignty versus human free will thing worked out. Whoever can divide that perfectly 100% for us, you know, let's go ahead and begin that now. Imagine trying to stand before the Lord and totally, you know, be able to separate those two things out. Pastor Brandon had shared uh, the video from Alistair Begg a few weeks back about the man on the cross who simply showed up in heaven and, and because he had believed, he trusted in Jesus. All his testimony was, was the man on the middle cross said, I could come. Now, we can't be wise enough. We can't have our understanding be perfect enough. We're not called to have all the details exactly right and, and in every way. We have foundations of the faith. Don't, don't hear me say that I'm, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what we believe. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying all of us believe imperfectly to some extent. But our hope is not in ourselves. 
It's in Christ. And we've placed our hope in him. He's the one who's carrying that hope. The pivotal question of our life is who we say Jesus is. Pontius Pilate's going to ask the question this way, what should I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? Very similar way to pose a, a similar question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What are you going to do with him? What meaning is it going to have in our lives? And then Jesus continues. Verse 21, and Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Number six, following Jesus comes with a cost. And since Jesus suffered, his, follow, his followers will at times suffer too. Jesus is interlinking the truth about the fact that what's coming up for him is that he is going to face persecution. He's going to walk a road of suffering, that God's plan for him is to be turned over to these religious authorities, and these religious authorities are going to end his life. And so Jesus doesn't just stay there. What he also speaks about is, and essentially, you're going to be walking a similar road because anyone uh, who would come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. That at times his followers will at times suffer too. That for us to, de to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus, there is an extent that that can be used for us to understand denying ourselves means saying no to things that would be dishonorable to the Lord in order to say yes to what he's called us to. At times it would be saying no to nothing, be, saying no to simply observing in order to say yes to following him. So there might be some application of that. But Jesus is quite literally speaking about the fact that your very lives may be at risk because of the belief that you've placed in me. And so you've got to be willing, if placing that faith, to say, you know what, my eternal life is more important than just my temporal life here. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The language that Luke uses centers in on the aspect of Jesus speaking about uh, someone's life. The word soul, for instance, that we commonly think of when this phrase is used in other gospels is not given explicitly here, though the word can be translated either way. The meaning of it in the context that Luke gives focuses more on life. So in the end of that, what we see is Jesus spoke about both someone's soul and someone's life. Those two things are intertwined together. But Luke speaking largely to a Roman world, a Gentile world, for them to understand the connotation of life, I have to wonder if, if one of the major images that was in their mind uh, was this fellow who's on the back of your page, even though we haven't made it there by points yet, and that's Alexander the Great. 
Alexander the Great, you ever study people in history and you find out all they accomplished by like half of your lifetime and you think, have I done anything with my life? Alexander the Great conquered the whole world by the age of 30 or something like that. The whole known world, he conquered the entire thing. And as the story goes, he wept uh, on, the, on the coast of the sea when he realized there was nothing else left to conquer perhaps weeping at how meaningless it all seemed even when he had conquered the whole world. And it wasn't long after that that uh, to somewhat mysterious circumstances, uh, he died on his way back. He conquered the whole world and on his way back home to celebrate it, he lost his life. And so when Jesus says, what gain is it for someone to gain the whole world and to lose his life, perhaps in that context by people who've been sh- so shaped by Alexander's conquest that then made the door be open for the Roman world's conquest, maybe they're thinking the first person that pops up is, yeah, Alexander the Great. We call him the Great and he, he you know, conquered the whole world and yet he died before he could even enjoy any of it. He, he never got to even see the fruit of what he had done because his life ended. And so perhaps there's some way of of driving that home that even Jesus is saying, for each one of us, if we're chasing the wrong things, even if we have a life that means so much by the world's standards, if that life ends in just us ultimately realizing we lost it because it wasn't for eternal significance, then what a tragedy. Will it gain the whole world? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, loses or forfeits his soul? How wonderful is it to experience the greatest things known to man for a hundred years here on earth and for all eternity to realize you completely missed the boat. And so following Jesus comes with a cost and since Jesus suffered, his followers will at times suffer too. We'll come back to these two little points that are below that here, but if you want the back page one to go ahead and get filled in, if you've turned there, following Jesus draws us into eternal perspective for our lives. Following Jesus draws us into eternal perspective for our lives. And so more on that in just a moment. If you want to flip back to the front, because I know I don't want to riot here if I forget any blanks. We've got these last two here. You know, when we think about the, the teaching of Jesus, for him to say, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus is speaking about and and in some areas what he's not speaking about. Um, You know, the, the first thing that I think it's really healthy for us as American Christians to realize is that, number one, we need to be really careful how we speak about our own persecution. We need to be really careful about how we speak about our own persecution. I know many of you get um, mailings like Voice of the Martyrs and others that really help bring an understanding into what Christians around the world go through for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I think if we're not careful, we can be really disrespectful to our brothers and sisters around the world to speak about what we walk through as persecution comparatively to what they go through at times because in reality, just because we saw something on the news that hasn't impacted our daily life yet, that's nothing compared to the person who's having to decide whether they're going to be thrown out by their family and possibly murdered by their town in order to believe in Jesus. I mean, it makes us really thankful for the country in which we live and recognizing that we may walk through some level of persecution. But there are millions upon millions of Christians all over the world who would trade with us in a heartbeat. So we've got to be really careful 
about how we speak about that, I, I think. I think that's honoring. But when I read this passage, I want to remember that there are people who are walking this road in ways that I can't even imagine. And it's the grace of God that we don't have to walk that road. And so we don't have to, to the second point that's here, we don't need to be fatalistic. We don't need to think the only way we can follow Jesus is for our life to get absolutely terrible. Suffering is not the goal. In this passage, Jesus is not teaching us to chase suffering. He's telling us, when suffering comes, remain with me. And that's very distinct and different. That for us, we don't need to try to, you know, somehow go into suffering in such a way to say, well, that's, that's how I'm going to show I'm really, uh, you know, faithful to the Lord. I've got to make people mad at me. I've got to become someone that people, you know, groan when they see me coming. Or I've got to pretend somehow that I'm just under so much persecution because of this or that. I'm, I'm not trying to belittle or, or, or demean anything that any of us might go through. There are real challenges and things that can be hard. But I think we've got to be careful and recognize, Lord, we're blessed in so many ways and the avenues that we have. I don't think anybody had to duck gunfire on the way here tonight uh, in order to be able to come and, and worship together. And so us recognizing that. And so in the little ways, and if there ever develops into larger, more difficult ways, for us to pray that we can be faithful and to look to the Lord. But for the last point that's on your page that was there on the back, for us to have an eternal perspective. One guy's name who you might know, former pastor and, and author, a guy named Francis Chan had a, an illustration that he used where he brought on stage something like a, a, you know, a 200 foot rope and he's just carrying this giant rope onto the stage and everybody can see it you know, from a good ways around. And he says, I want you to recognize that this rope represents your life. Now there was a tiny strip of duct tape on the very end of the rope and he held it up and he said, can everybody see the orange duct tape that's on the end of this rope? And people, you know, because of the screens, you know, yeah, yeah, we can, we can see that duct tape. He said, this little piece of orange duct tape that's tacked onto the end represents your and my earthly life here before heaven. And the rest of this rope is not even the beginning of a representation for what our life eternally is going to be. So many times we get so wrapped up into the immediate and the here and the now, don't we? what I feel now, what I want now, what I'm walking through now, what, I, what my goals are now, what I wanna enjoy now, it's all about right here. Maybe at times we'll, we'll say, well, in five years, I wanna be able to do this in 10 years. I don't know that we ever think about our million year plan. Are you willing to say, Lord, help me to have a mindset that desires the eternal more than the temporal? that remembers that my life is not ultimately contained just in the things that I walk through right now, the decisions that I make now, the things I have and the things I don't have, the hurts and cares and worries of this world. Lord, help me to remember it's all just the strip of duct tape on a giant rope that no one has sought the end of yet. That for each one of us, eternal perspective uh, is one of the greatest gifts the Lord can give us. And so may it be true of us on the good days and on the bad days. May the Lord help us to do just that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the calling of Jesus that I know convicts my own heart so much to remember the eternal nature of our existence in Christ and to remember the eternal nature of those around us, our neighbors, our friends, our families. Lord, would you help us to love and to speak, especially to those who are curious, even, even if somehow they're, they're not curious in the right way. Father, would you help us to have wisdom, to have discernment for how to care, for how to love, for how to speak, for how to be involved in the life of those people that you've placed us around?
Lord, would you help us to not simply want to observe, but to be faithful in the ways that you've called us to put Jesus' work in our hearts into action? Would you help us uh, to, uh, to give the people something to eat? And so, Lord, for each one here tonight, for different cares and challenges that we walk into this room with, uh, Lord, may we go to you and find strength in you. May you continue to grow us to be more and more like your son. In whose name we pray, amen.